BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, Noir's greatest defense attorney is back, representing two men accused of shooting a socialite. But did the victim's shady past lead to a setup? Just before tonight's season two finale, we're talking about the return of HBO's Perry Mason. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Wait a minute. What? Something is missing. What's that? The love of your life. Well, I don't feel that way right now. How are you, what? Kevin? What? What did I do? <laughs> no, I just forgot to read it. How you doing, uh, Kevin? I'm I'm well now. <laughs> Relieved. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, author of The Final Curtain and Love of My Life, Laura Bricker. Hey, oh, Laura. Oh, crying out loud. Oh, Rebecca. I'm glad you finally acknowledged it. <laughs> we can finally be honest. You're like Della Street and Anita. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Without all the boob content. Well, Oh, my God. That was some good boob content. Me and Rocky Flintstone are into that stuff. (laughs) And finally, our captain of all things cynical, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hi, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. All right, so, Kevin, this is obviously Monday's podcast. Obviously. What is happening on Thursday's show, Love of My Life? On Thursday, we're going to be talking about season four of... The uh, series Witnessed, it's called Devil in the Ditch. I cannot wait to talk about that one. We're looking forward to that conversation. Well, we've got a uh, big television program to talk about this evening, so I think we should just get to it. What do you think, Kevin? Let's do it. I know that you love you some noir. So let's lead off and drop that first clip right now. I don't think they did it. Milligan's case has holes and I have evidence that weakens the case against them. If you're hoping to use it to secure a plea deal for them, I already tried. Burger shot me down. After a self-imposed exile, Perry Mason returns to criminal defense work, charged with defending two young Mexican men accused of murdering the son of a powerful businessman in 1930s Los Angeles. With the help of sidekicks Della Street and Paul Drake, Perry seeks justice for the defendants he fears will be railroaded. So you believe they're innocent? We wouldn't have taken this case if we didn't. The evidence against Mateo and Rafael Gallardo isn't just flimsy see-through. It's all circumstantial, and we intend to prove that at trial. But victim Brooks McCutcheon was into some shady business. Casino boats, oil drilling, and a new baseball stadium. Not to mention his dangerous sexual predilections. While Paul seeks clues in L.A.'s mean streets... Perry and Della navigate the high society players who'd be happy to see the Gallardo brothers take the fall. Maybe I like stacked odds. You've been digging into my son's affairs. Well, I'd like you to consider finding another hole to dig in. What hole do you suggest? Anyone that isn't full of mud to drag his good name through. Matthew Reese and an all-star cast return for the second season of the Emmy-nominated Perry Mason. Once again, the famous attorney must find how all the disparate players and opaque clues fit together, hoping to reveal the real culprit and get a dramatic confession. Spoiler alert, the season two finale is Monday night, so we'll be talking about plot points from the first seven episodes of Perry Mason. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes, For our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews, and just know that if you listen to this podcast later, we may sound real stupid. What do you mean later? (laughs) Sometimes people have listened to this show after the finale has happened. Oh, right, right, right. And we sound real stupid. 
So, Laura, just like with season one of Perry Mason, this one kicks off with a pretty slow burn start. Would you agree? Yeah. And it's interesting because what I'm going to say later on is how much I loved the season of Perry Mason. But the first episode, I think I started and stopped it like five times Mm. before I actually started it and committed to it. And I think for me, this is one of those things. It's slow. You literally really have to put your phone down. You can't be scrolling and watching when you're watching Perry Mason because you have to really, it's like the world building that takes place in the show. It's immersive, but it's a slow build. And it builds to what I think is the strongest part of this, which is the courtroom scenes. But that first episode, Perry's doing boring civil law, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, this is it. But also that's also sort of like this trope. I'm like, oh, the guy who's not satisfied with the civil law, but then the <laughs> criminal case is going to come along that he can't say no to, and he's going to get back into it. So we know what's going to happen. Um, but it's the lighting, the costume, the dialogue, everything in the beginning is this sort of, it's laying out for what is to come. It's laying the foundation. And if you stick with that, you're going to be rewarded. But if you're like me, who is somebody that gets very easily distracted, you really need to commit in the beginning and just like turn everything else off and get into it. Because when it gets going, you are not going to want to stop watching. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Laura, that it certainly takes a little while for the season to get going. Same thing with season one, although you will remember they killed a baby in the first two minutes of season one. I love right? that. I love that. <laughs> No, I did. It was just Jesus, the Rebecca. No, it was just, just the beginning of Battlestar Galactica, where it's just like you're like, oh fuck, this show's not fucking around. Yeah. Like, and I, I loved that because it was just like, you know, some shit's gonna go down. I'm not saying I fucking like it when people kill babies. I'm not a monster, but like, I loved the way that that show kicked off because even though it was a slow burn after that, you knew it wasn't gonna be wasting your fucking time. Yeah, and there's sort of stylistically, I think it's different than season one. Season one sort of had this otherworldliness because of this. Um, you know, very majestic and mysterious church thing with Sister Alice, I think it was, you know. So that world that you brought into is kind of alien to us. This world is a little more of the classic noir where we're talking about politics and business and things that in themselves we can kind of relate to. And it's sort of the particulars. But you're right. The episode one is all planting seeds. And, you know, all these different things that don't look like they fit together at all. You know, they're eventually going to get together. and you know, the question is, are you going to stick with it? We stuck with it. I mean, because I think we had to. But uh, it started off slow. But then as we started pulling things together, you could see, you know, more of a classic mystery. You don't want to know everything right at the beginning because then there's no mystery. Yeah. Well, I know that if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I ended up liking this a whole lot later. But I hated this at the beginning of the season. And I think it wasted a shit ton of time on stuff that was not necessary And Toby, I don't know about you, but I just felt like if I recommended to somebody, hey, I really loved Perry Mason season one, you should check it out. And I started sitting down right now to watch this. I'd be like, what the fuck is somebody recommending that I watch? Like, don't you feel like that's a big barrier for like a viewer to get past if they are just trying to get into a thing for this? They spend an awful lot of time doing an awful lot of not much for a long time in the first few episodes of this series. Yeah. I, I think in addition to the, the first episode, which, you know, it takes a while to finally get to the actual crime, you know, there's this whole, I, I don't even know how long it takes. It seemed like it was an eternity thing where Perry's son, who I didn't realize was he even a part of the first. Yeah. He was, uh, yeah. he was like Perry's son shows up and he teaches him horseback riding and, falls in love with his teacher or something. That's so Perry can get some action. Yeah. That's not necessary. I don't want to see that. And, um, <laughs> and then there's this whole like charade about Willie or won't he take the case? It's like, of course he's going to fucking take the case. <laughs> like, why are we spending any time on this at all? Right. Like, why is it, if you're going to spend time on it, why does he just be like, Oh, I, I'm not doing that anymore. And then have the next scene be like, Oh, okay. I guess I'll do it because the rest of it is just, it's just a charade. He wants to be a mechanic. I, I understand all that. We can take this case. Emily Dodson, do save her. No, no, I didn't. It's the classic hero's journey thing, Toby, right? We don't need, we already the hero, had that. The we hero haven't... always rejects the call to action at first. We had it in season one. Yeah, but it's, okay. it, but it's, it's the hero so... Now. <laughs> 
like, do you really need to check that box at this length? Because what happens essentially is he goes through a series of little interactions with people that sort of are giving him sort of the moral case for why he has to do this, right? Sort of obliquely. And so it's just like this, this series of interactions, which don't really have much to do other than in his mind, triggering why the right thing to do is to take on the case of the Gallardo brothers. And um, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I was just like, this time is just ticking away. You've got eight episodes to tell this story and you're spending a good 20 to 25 minutes on shit that just isn't going to matter. And the whole time with Perry's son, I'm like, okay, so this is either just such a waste of time or he's going to get kidnapped by the yeah. bad guy <laughs> and held. And I don't know which one is worse. And I don't know. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be kidnapped because he disappeared completely, never to be seen again. I feel like it was part of this attempt to like humanize Perry in a different way this season where we've got him like living in his house. It's not unpacked. He's like looking for every time he wakes up, he's like, there's no furniture and like which clothes are clean. Um, now I have this son and oh, now the milk arrives and I'm wearing my disgusting boxer shorts and I have to drink. Like it's trying to show us like Perry Mason outside of the courtroom. And I don't necessarily think I needed that, except that I am sort of hoping that his girlfriend, she was uh, interesting. Like, I'm like, okay, maybe she's going to be somebody that like, like she pulled one over on him and that's why she's here. And we're going to find that out in the end. No. Because if not, I'm just like. <laughs> she planted um, no. herself as his kid's teacher. Well, I'm like, okay. I'm like, maybe she is somehow connected to the woman that drowned herself. That's all I can think is like, maybe she's somehow connected to the woman who drowned herself from season one. And that's why she's here to seek retribution because Perry Mason never answered the postcards. Like that's the only reason she's here besides Perry Mason having sex. I have a question. I have a real question. I didn't watch Perry Mason on television. I didn't. And I will admit it because I'm not 150 years old. Yeah. Um, so because I'm not 150 years old, Kevin, did you watch Perry Mason? No. Okay. Does anybody know just from canon, like I'm assuming on the regular television show, he was not like a sad sack with a sad sack life outside of the courtroom. He's probably just a hero on the TV show, right? And then this yeah, is, yeah. This he, is like he, a little bit of a retcon for HBO. Uh, well, a little bit more two-dimensional, I think, probably yeah, yeah. like all No, the- I'm just curious because I think that like as a viewer, I'm assuming that like at some point in the life of this series, he's just going to be the hero Perry Mason that he grows to be, right? Like he's going to be Batman at some point, right? He has the Perry Ma- he has his own Perry Mason moment. Yeah, yeah, so like I do feel like we are being these parts. Well, we like I feel like we had to watch this in season 1 already or we had to watch him grow. Mm-hmm. We had to watch him like pass the bar. We had to watch him overcome all the shit he needed to do just to become a lawyer to get into the court to begin with. And then when he got there, it's like, fuck yeah, there's Perry Mason. We already watched this journey. So what I really wanted was season two. All right, now he's a lawyer. Now he's doing the shit we know he can do. Like, just pick it up where it started. And it really bothered me that they set him back. Like, yeah. all of these steps. Della has moved forward. Paul has moved forward. Why is he back 17 steps? And we're like, why? Like, the show is called Perry Mason. It's not called Della Street and Paul with Perry at the beginning of the sorry board. <laughs> the but sorry don't you want board. to see Matthew Reese act? He can, say, act. he can do, but that's the thing. At the end of the show, do you think he's not acting when he's being Perry Mason all of a sudden? He's still acting. He's wonderful. He's, they, well, I don't know. A great deal this season was spent on Perry Mason motorcycle slash Ant-Man. Mm. Um, Perry Mason driving around on his motorcycle that he got in payment from a client who couldn't pay him, which is probably a stolen motorcycle, and him just like driving around being tormented with his Ant-Man goggles on. Yeah. And I was Very like, Very oh. era appropriate. Yes. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then followed by Perry Mason, racehorse jockey with no saddle, which first of all, your horse is not going to go that fast with a saddle because you're slapping around on his back, Perry Mason. But whatever. So there was a lot of like weird shit thrown in this season. Yeah. He spends a lot of time moping around, especially in the beginning. And, and that's just another thing that I felt like was kind of a waste of time was this whole... It's not even really a subplot, but it's just this thing where his former client committed suicide and he feels really bad about it and with good reason. But then it ends and that's it. Like 
it's just gone. Yeah. Like it doesn't come up again. It's like, okay, well that was like more time that was killed for no particular reason because it doesn't haunt him anymore. Mm. Like he basically forgives himself and then just moves on with his life. Yeah. And well, he has just, Della do that with him, right? He's kept it inside till we get to, I don't know, episode four or five where he shares the, the postcards and stuff yeah. like that. And he talks it out. Yeah. Right. But it's that, is it that easy? I mean, is it, is it something that's going to haunt you until you tell your buddy and then suddenly it's like, oh, well, I guess I'm involved and you move on. I mean, it's, it's just, it's part of the problem, I think, with this whole thing of like trying to humanize him is that, you know, this isn't Mayor of Easttown, right? Where you have a character who you can imagine running into at some point. Like Perry Mason is not like a normal person, right? He's like... Somewhere in between, like, a cartoon character and a real person. He's supposed to be a genius, we're reminded in the series. Remember, he passed the bar without going mm-hmm. to law school? He's supposed mm-hmm. to be, like, a super genius. Yeah, we- <laughs> but he's just, like, I mean, he's he's a little bit, you know, when somebody just compared him to, like, Batman or whatever, like, that, that feels, like, kind of right. So this whole idea that you're going to build this, like, complicated emotional life for him, it's like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't really feel like what you are getting out of him is oh, this is like a normal guy. This is like a a real person. Like this whole thing is kind of like playing with noir tropes and noir atmosphere to create like a very atmospheric mystery story. And then this, all this other stuff, it it feels like more of kind of a modern, like, well, we got to make him relatable. We got to have his son who like, is ambivalent about him, but really likes it when he takes some horseback riding and all this shit. And this, uh, yeah, I, I just thought it was well, lame. Yeah. And also like, I, I mean, the part that I think was probably the most unnecessary was like the return to season one, to the ancestral home, which is now a bar run by the lady that he used to have sex with. Like who gives a shit? Mm. Like we did not need that scene yeah. at all. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think we needed that. I thought that scene was the most unnecessary in this entire season. Well, I want to make a pivot and talk about one thing that does change in this episode. Mm-hmm. They do explore because this one thing that thing that Perry Mason, the series is trying to do. And one thing that Kevin and I have been doing is we've been watching the little like after things that HBO does after their mm-hmm. like prestige TV inside meetings. the episode. And they're fun for this one because they have a lot of historians on talking about their historical consultants about Los Angeles on talking about, they've hired a fuck ton of historical consultants for this series. Yeah. Um, talking about how they did a lot of um, work in really recreating real people, real political situations, real stuff, real corruption that was happening there and brought it into the series. And they did this pivot from this like evangelical church thingy, season mm-hmm. one, which was based on, based a, real on thing, a real thing, yeah, yeah. to this corrupt government crime and uh, sort of rich people network. Mm-hmm. And so that's- The evictions in that neighborhood where they ended yeah, up building Dodger Stadium. Yeah, and that stadium, stadium thing was yeah. real. That whole thing was real. So I really think it was really interesting when they brought in the Hope Davis character and her, you know, the first scene where we sort of see her swimming and using her like weird little Pilates machine. Mm-hmm. She's wonderful in this series as this like creepy baroness weirdo. This is called a reformer. Helps to find the core. How's your core, Mr. Mason? Pretty good. Oh, I'm sure your clients admire that level of confidence. Kevin, what do you think about her performance and what do you think about this pivot to sort of high society and gentrification and corruption that this season is taking? Well, I think I think they need to play in a world. Right. And so, like I said earlier about, you know, the evangelical television, I should say, radio church and and that thing, it was different. So here we are. One of the things about noir is that it's supposed to be the there's a, you know, a morally ambiguous a hero who takes us, the reader or the viewer or the listener, to the edge of a strange world, an evil world, right? That's it's the film noir is not literally supposed to mean black and white. It's supposed to be like this dark area. And so that we can see we don't all we don't go all the way in, but we sort of are able to see it through this character's eyes. And so we get some of that here in this world where we have different things like business people and the oligarchs, the, the politicians. So it's a world outside of where Perry is used to. And so he helps bring, so he's helping 
bring us there and you meet all these interesting people. Just like you do when you sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Oh, just like that. Just like that. Just the business people you meet there. All sorts of interesting people. I'm going to tell you, we... Wait, we're in the business section now. Obviously. Just checking. And I'm going to tell you that we talked about our new Patreon level where we're going to give you ad-free episodes of Crime Writers On. And we said, you know what? Let's make it really worth your while and let's just get rid of the business section too so you don't have to listen to us talk about the things that are already on Patreon. And there was a revolt. There was a revolt. People were like, we love the business section. Yeah, like literally people were like, I'm not paying for that. I don't want the ad-free one if there's not going to be a business section. Some people just want a, a podcast that is the business section. Just They're the like, get rid of, don't get, talk get, about get rid of the content. <laughs> all the other business podcasts. section all the time. All just you guys chilling stuff, plugging stuff, talking about cats. Yeah. So I want to let everybody know that starting May 2nd, that's Monday, May 2nd, we are going to be going live with a new $15 level at Patreon. The level is called... Let's do what we do, and you get the ad-free episodes. <laughs> you get those do episodes. What we do. <laughs> so you get all those episodes. It's not, it's not called. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. We've got other. We've got other great levels you can come in on. We've got the uh, leading off. We've got the. Uh, <laughs> Toby, are you eating Twizzlers? Scalers. What are you eating, Toby? <laughs> we're doing. We're doing business now, Laura. Come on, we're recording a podcast. Toby's eating dried mandarins okay. from like Trader Joe's. Laura, you do realize there's a podcast yeah. happening around you right now, right? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I, yeah. There's a there's a seventeen dollar level where there's no Laura Brady. <laughs> <gasps> or maybe it's only 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 distracted Laura. Only distractions. Yeah. Seventeen dollar level where we give Laura some Adderall before we record the podcast. We cut off everybody's mic except Laura's, so you can hear like the cats walking around, her talking to herself. <laughs> Come on. Mm-hmm. If we could just like isolate each one of us oh, yeah, for you, a certain you, amount of money, you just, you'd get, just the get stems. us. Yeah. Yeah. Audio stems and you can <laughs> do that. Toby blowing his nose. Yeah, Kevin blowing going, my nose. Ahem, ahem. <laughs> I killed the mic for that. Okay, so so of course, in addition to me, uh, me drinking my white claw. <laughs> in addition to the ad-free, but business included uh, episodes of Crime Writers on there are other. You also get all the other great stuff, which includes the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker. Now, I do want to let you know that this week on the Crime Writers on After Show, oh God, it's wild. Usually, we do this podcast and then we talk after in the after show sometimes bringing up things we talked about not today we, satan <laughs> we just got started and this was either going to be a very long outtake <laughs> or we just like we are doing this as the after show and it all started when laura bricker asked the question has your toenail just ever fallen off <laughs> And it went from there. <laughs> spoiler and the, alert. And this proves my point. While well, people do not want to lose the business section because they want to know. For 50% of us, the answer was not no. It's not no. <laughs> I'm glad that Toby and I have solidarity. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin and I were just sitting here with our mouths agape. Yeah. You all is freaks. You is freaks. <laughs> it's like a circus over there. Well, house. you you shifted it to talking about like losing toes. I was like, I don't lose toes. <laughs> Just you may as well. All right. oh, so, this, so this is a little bit that's a little I would preview. just cut off my whole foot if that happened to me with regularity. <laughs> oh, man. By the way, there's a new episode of Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast. Laura went down. Again. Stole hay. <laughs> into the church basement to find some tombstones. This was your great mystery. Laura, what did you What did you do and what did you find out? Um, I won't tell you what I found out, but I'll tell you. I got uh, Minister M, my pastor, was like, hey, Bricker. There's some shit in the basement of the church and you need to come see it. Basically, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't think Minister M said some shit in the basement. But there's these gravestones in the basement and it's kind of creepy. Like, why are they there? And I went down into the bowels of the church, down into the boiler room, which could also double as a sauna when I went down there. And in fact, yes, there are two gravestones in the basement of my church 
And so I went on a what is mission. This, the Vatican? <laughs> like, what the hell is going on at your fucking <laughs> town? For God's sake. This is what I'm saying. Well, so. this, is, this is what you get at the Brickter Scale level. You get to hear Laura Brecker solve <laughs> mysteries in her quaint AF town of Exeter. Yeah, it sounded New less, yeah. less quaint yeah. every week. Yeah, I know, yeah. So get, you can get to the bottom of how Olive Light and Joanna Dyer who died on Christmas Eve, 1720, ended up in the basement of my church. Mm, excellent. Now, also, Toby Ball has his Deep Dive Book Club podcast. Recently, Toby uh, recorded an episode discussing the book The Evidence of Things Not Seen, and now he's got a really big, big show coming up. People got to do their reading because they're going to want to hear your episode talking about the book Motor Spirit. Hell yeah. Who's uh, on? Yeah. It's by uh, Jarrett Kobeck. It's about the Zodiac murders. And it's, it's a really interesting book. Different take, very good writing. And I've got a stellar all-star lineup. We have Janet Varney, yep. uh, deep dive favorite. We have uh, Rebecca Lavoie, who's a host of Crime Writers On, a, Dark a Horse. Uh, true crime review podcast. <laughs> and uh, and then Jillian Pensavalli. Of uh, true crime obsessed, among many other things. So it's going to be an awesome conversation. Making her deep dive debut. Making her deep dive debut. And both Rebecca and Jillian have been uh, very vocal in their love for this book. So I I think there will be um, obviously people who have thought about it quite a bit. You know who told me to read this book? Elon Green. Yes, I do. Elon Green, (laughs) who wrote Last Call, another deep dive favorite. Yes. And also a deep dive guest. Yes. So. So that's Everything what you comes get at, full circle on the deep dive. So that's what you get at Patreon. You're going to get stuff about the Zodiac Killer, Tombstones, and Toenails. Yeah. So. <laughs> Tombstones and Toenails. Yes. And Laura going down. Oh to God. the church basement. <laughs> All right, we're going to leave it there. Thus ends the business section. I'm going to go ahead and fade that music out right now. What a wild ride. Yeah. All right, so Kevin, what do you think about Perry Mason's sidekicks, uh, Della oh, yeah. Street and Paul Drake? They have definitely made, as I said, some strides forward as characters from season one to yeah, season two. Yeah, they they have grown. So Della Street was always his savvy girl Friday in the books and in the TV show, his secretary, right? You, you just admitted earlier you hadn't seen the TV show. So how do you know that? Because I've done, I've done <laughs> research on the canon. By the way, did you know that at the time, the Perry Mason book series was the biggest selling book series in the world? They finally got knocked off at one point by uh, uh, the Harry Potter books and some other book series. Really? Yeah, and wrote right a now, zillion of them. Yeah, and right now they're all out of print in the United States. Wow. These, huh. these were like Perry Mason in the case of the wolfy yeah. legs and Perry Mason in the case. Yeah. It was like Nancy Drew, but for grown-ups. We, yeah. we had so many of those up at uh, our place at Bear Island, Earl Stanley Gardner. Yeah. Uh, but right, so Della Street, you said, you know, in the, the past she was just the, the, just the secretary, but now this is a little more modern take on her. A modern 1930s take, I guess you say. Not only she's she's probably going to go to law school 20 years before Ruth Bader Ginsburg does, uh, because she's certainly on that way. Did you or did you not threaten his life at a party on July 4th, 1932 at the Oceano Club? I don't know. Did you not brandish a gun? Because according to the Malibu Register... I was drunk. It was... Uh, I got a little out of hand. A little out of hand. I'll kill the perverted bastard. I never said that! I think we talked about this last time, this interesting dramatic twist where they make her uh, a lesbian character and we really get to see more so in this season, that world in Los Angeles, 1930, which is a a world that we don't often get to see portrayed in, uh, in fiction. And also from the canon, like uh, Paul, they have Paul Drake last season. He was a cop and then becomes Perry Mason's private eye. You know, he was not a black character. He is here. And that also expands sort of our our area here where we can explore another world of 1930s Los Angeles. But both of them seem to be, you know, growing professionally and personally, uh, advancing like that. And I think when you look at Paul and his, his wife, Clara, Yes. Yeah. Like his ride or die. His ride or die. Yeah. It's like they seem She's to be awesome. The, they seem to be the only one with a healthy relationship. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I like where they have taken these characters and, uh, you know, again, try to 
to to Broadham. Uh, I believe in the the books that the Paul Drake character was much more like Pete Strickland. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Who is you, you know the <laughs> the guy with that cap on sideways and smoking? Oh, he's eating spaghetti. In an oh, alley? eating spaghetti. Yeah, the one who <laughs> the one who caught his fingers on that uh, uh, the rubber band and yeah. now looks like Laura Bricker's toes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Laura, I have a question for you. Yeah. Uh, Paul Drake's camera trick. Okay, describe for people listening to this who haven't seen the show what that was, and then tell me what you wrote in your notes about it. So Paul Drake's camera trick. Um, so he's trying to get a picture of some people associating together at like, I think like a fancy hotel or something. And so instead of just going to the hotel, he takes his wife and his little baby there and pretends he's photographing them in the lobby of the hotel. And while well, he's like muttering under his breath to move right or left as the people are coming down the stairway. And I was like, number one, I would totally do this. And number two, I've totally done something similar to this. Mm-hmm. We are... And I'm going to I'm going to wrap myself out here. There was a person that my little group of friends knew that had a a new person they were dating and we wanted to get a shot of it. So I had my camera set up and I discovered that I could use my Apple watch to take the picture surreptitiously. Mm. Click, click, click as the camera was just resting there. So Paul Drake. Why did Paul Drake get an Apple Watch? Ah, I would have been a much better solution. He should have had an Apple Watch because I was just like, oh, here they come. Here they come. And I'm like, tap, 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 tap. And nobody notices I'm doing anything. Um, You can also record like that on your Apple Watch. Yes. In case you're wondering. Uh, Kevin has perfected the art of of surreptitiously taking photos of me while actually photographing the thing behind me. Yeah, it's usually the thing that you want to photograph Yeah, it's always me. But but you're much better at acting it than I am. Because when I do you, I'm always like, move to the left, Kevin. And that's like, I'm very bad. You're very good at it, though. Yeah, I know yeah. how to take a photograph. <laughs> good job. But I want to say, like what you were saying, Kevin, about these characters, about Paul Drake's character. And I mm-hmm. think like what really comes through for me this season with him is that this is a man of principle. Like this is an investigator who is, regardless of if they're working for the police or Perry Mason, somebody that is sticking to their guns and abiding by their moral compass. And we see that really come to a head after the scene where he literally has to like beat the shit out of some guy so his hands don't get chopped off. Listen, look at me. What kind of car she drives? I don't know to make. Lincoln, maybe. Blue thing, that's all I can tell you. Okay, okay, okay. Fuck. Okay. I got everything I need now. I don't think you did. Look like this boy's still holding out on you. So we ain't leaving. And then he's tormented by it. And we see him go home to his wife and he can't sleep. And she knows something is wrong. But, you know, so I think for me that humanized his character more. So, again, like we're seeing these side characters to me really step into a place this season. And Della's character, Della's character this season, I think, is my favorite character. Yeah, she's wonderful. We see her stepping into what to me I feel like is the most authentically portrayed lesbian relationship I've seen in something in a way where it was authentic. It was sexy as fuck. Um, and it was, I I was like, wow. Uh, and she's got, and, and, but also, you know, we see her grappling with cutting off this, you know, the, the girl at the rooming house that she had this, I'm going to just call it a placeholder thing with, because at this time, you know, it wasn't a her time starter where, relationship. Her starter relationship, like her starter house. But, but I don't have I a good like, feeling about Anita for some reason. Yeah, she might be the there's one who ratted everybody there, out. Yeah, there's just something not. You right. mean Della's new? Della's, Della's new love. Della's new love. Yeah I, yeah, I don't trust her either. I think she. I actually, I have to tell you, Kevin, I'm kind of wondering if she's one of the ones that is a plant that is actually there for some other information because she's yeah. almost too good to be true because she's so smart and she's so... Because there's like, not really a lot of conflict. Look at my fancy house. Right? Yeah. yeah. So just narratively, yeah. you're like, okay, well, why Why is she here then? So Toby has um, feelings about two characters. Can I ask you about the one you don't you hate first, Toby? Sure. Who do you hate? He doesn't like Pete. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> You don't I, like stories about horses that jump into a swimming pool from a high dive platform? You don't like guys I, who eat spaghetti in an alley for no reason? <laughs> I, he just seems like a grown-up little rascal's character or something. I, yes! <laughs> oh, that's perfect! He's just so unbelievable. He's such a, like, stereotype, 
that plays exactly to type all the time. There's never a scene that you see him in where you're like, huh? It's like always, he talks like a freaking idiot. As soon as he like hangs out with the rich, you know, assistant DA and they get that Napoleon poured out or whatever, you know, he's going to say something. It's like folksy or whatever. The scene where he fights with Perry is just so unbelievably stupid. I mean, it's like, it's like a trope, but it's taking a horrible trope from bad movies and then playing it straight. And that's followed up by an even worse one where they go to Perry's office and everybody basically wants a piece of him, And he's like, not backing down. Let's go outside. It's like, come on. This is just, it's stupid. Yes. But you, like me, really like Mr. Hamburger. <laughs> Ham? Hamilton Burger, Burger yeah. whose so, name shortens to Hamburger. He's one of the few characters. Well, first of all, I really like that actor. I don't know who he is. I think he was on Weeds. Um, I don't know. He seems like one of the few characters who has sort of a believable quandary mm-hmm. in this. In that it's Justin he Kirk is, playing Hamburger. Yeah. I, <laughs> Which I, I can't I, get out of my head as soon as Kevin told me, you realize Hamburger is Hamburger. <laughs> Hamburglar. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems like he's like the, the one character who it's like, oh, okay, well, this actually seems like it kind of makes sense even beyond sort of the logic that you have to do to make this whole plot work and that he, you know, he's a closeted as everybody was at the time, I assume gay man uh, in a position of of, of power whose, you know, private life is being used against him to blackmail him into making decisions in his, in in his position that he wouldn't normally make. I I find him to be uh, a compelling character and I do you know, I, I think another issue I have with some of these characters is that they put them in situations which they don't get the most out of. But I feel like with him, I think he's well written, he's well acted, and they do kind of wring the most out of his situation that they can in terms of complicating the situation in the plot. Yeah. But you also really like the scenes with Nygaard, which I do too, because they're really they're, Camilla. Those are the most noir scenes in the show. Every time she's on screen, that's to me the most like Alfred Hitchcock weirdest and Hope Davis just plays the shit out of those scenes. Yeah, she's awesome. I mean, I I, I kind of feel like sort of a, a sort of more general criticism of this is that, you know, I think good noir is just very weird. Yeah. And I just even thinking about like sort of modern noir, like Chinatown is a very, very strange movie. This is not a very weird show, but the scenes with. Nygaard in it are very weird and that's why I think they're the best the best scene she's such an odd character the interactions with her like always seem like they have some weird subtext going on that you can't quite put your finger on so you know huge spoiler alert when it's sort of indicated at the end of the second to last episode that she's responsible for the the murder that sort of gets everything going you know, it, it makes sense, right? Because she's she's the one character who it's kind of hard to pin down where she's coming from mm-hmm. and who you think would make decisions that don't necessarily comport with your impression of her. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, th- I thought that was her. I think her scenes are the best. And I thought that decision at that point was sort of the best, the best thing about sort of the overriding plot of the whole show so far. What is Phipps's role? What her assistant guy? Yes, yeah, her, her fake uh, yeah. pseudo pseudo husband. Is he also? I don't know if they still use this term, but a beard. Remember they? I mean, like how yeah, yeah, Della yeah. and Ham Hamilton. You know, they go out socially to well, so people I, don't. Yeah. So I did feel like Camilla actually is probably a closeted lesbian, and I did feel like that was his role. There was to be sort of again her sort of partner that keeps her. Um, but she also is a character that I don't think would totally give a shit if anybody knew she was a lesbian, but she's also so much about controlling the situation around her that I don't think she would ever reveal that, if right. that makes sense. So like, but like going back to all her weird stuff, like there, I mean, hers are the best, like the scene where she like Della comes over and Phipps is leaving and he's like, she wants three fingers of gin. And then she goes up and and she's like, have you ever tried marijuana? I find it very relaxing. And she like whips out her little pipe and then like, give me another drink. Like as if she's going to be there all night, just serving her. 
get me another drink. And then I just love when she's using that little exercise like thing. And she's like at her foot going like her leg going like back and forth and back Working and forth. Working her core. Yeah. I mean, she is the, the character that does, you know, would have a, a line on Hamilton maybe being gay and being with all of those other society people. How do you, how they bring in the Gallardos? Like that piece hasn't really still been mm-hmm. figured out yet. We know that yeah. there's yeah there's Converse sneaker guy. Isn't and- it telling though that we don't we haven't talked about them at all? Because even though they're like kind of the victims, something we don't really care that much because they've, they've been like it's they have been fleshed out so poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that that to me is like the weakest part of the season. Well, there's a lot going out in the. Real world, Agreed. as opposed to somebody stuck Agreed. in prison. Agreed, and you yeah. have these like disenfranchised people that he's defending, right? Mm-hmm. And we should care more. But the dude got beaten up in prison and dragged away, and I and like then he shows up again. And I was like, oh, I thought he died. I think he'll die. Yeah, I think he's gonna die. I had like no <laughs> feelings about. Well, I feel bad for the guy that got into art school, and then the brother like crumpled up his thing, and yeah. I was like, oh, this is sort of tragic right now. But back to the weird people in the fancy mansion. I kind of feel like in order to feel much for them, they have to have a little more agency than they do in yeah. this. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it may be accurate that they, there's no opportunity for that. And there is like this one thing where uh, the younger brother draws a, a picture, which is essentially a map to show where this this money is located. But, you know, for the most part, they just seem to be hoping Perry will help them out. So it just kind of like you realize that there are stakes for them, but you kind of also, you're not left with much to root for, for what they're doing, right? right? I mean, there's nothing that they do where you're like, man, I really hope this works out. It's like, no, there's sort of, their their fate is in completely in other people's hands and they, they can't really do much about it. And they even sort of worked against them for a while because they were lying to them. And I just thought, you know, it was interesting when we talked about Della earlier that everybody kind of understands what the term a Perry Mason moment is which is when you've got a, a witness on the witness stand and they end up saying the wrong thing and you catch them incriminating themselves or whatever. And in this last year, we didn't really get that. We got that in sort of a dream sequence where they're like, no, no one ever confesses on the stand. So we didn't really get to see it. We get that in this season, but it's Della who gets the Perry Mason moment with the belt. I thought that that was, um, I thought that that was interesting. Last thing I want to say is that I want to talk about, again, the cinematography, the costuming is great. The settings are great. The thing that always gets me is the use of the color yellow. If you watch it, there is yellow throughout in the, you know, in the colors on the walls, in the dresses, uh, and, and the costuming, brown complementing that. It's not only indicative of sort of the era um, incandescent lighting, but I do believe that it's thematic with a warm yellow, a bright yellow that's a color of like joy and warmth, the darkest yellow like we have here uh, that symbolizes death and putridity and cowardness. And I think that sort of thematically fits in with that's the black in this noir. That's the dark color. That, and I think that's, you know, what it's trying to set up is sort of that that strange, filthy underworld. All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Perry Mason season two on HBO or as it soon is going to be known with Chip and Joanna alongside all this prestige TV, just Max. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Perry Mason season two? I wish it would just stay HBO. It's so much easier. Drop the Max, keep the HBO. But anyway, it's going to still be HBO. The streaming service is going to be Max. All right. Okay. Um, So I'm going to say, and like I said during our earlier conversation, it took me like more than a few tries to get into this season of Perry Mason. And I was like, oh God, how did I like the first season so much? This first two episodes are so slow. However, if you can stick those out, I love this series. It's just, you have to get over sort of the inertia and the build up at the beginning of parts of the story that I don't think are necessarily integral to the Perry Mason mystery, where I think this really shines is the courtroom scenes, the relationships between Della, Ham, Paul, these side characters. It's a really good period piece in terms of the costuming and the setting and just everything that comes together to sort of really convey this time in history when this is taking place. But 
it's a really, you know, dark, noir mystery. If you can just get past those first two episodes, um, the rest of the season, I couldn't wait to watch. So for me, that's a thumbs up. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Perry Mason season two? Well, so Laura gave it a thumbs up, but she said like the first 25% of the entire season you have to kind of get through. Uh, mm-hmm. I would multiply that by four. I, 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 <laughs> it's got all sort of the trappings of noir without, I think, getting to what makes noir what it is. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure I can completely define it, but it just seems like it's a little bit smoothed over with the exception of some scenes with Hope Davis's character. I mean, there's some good, there's some good performances, you know, often noir kind of hinges on the end, which, you know, in sort of the classic definition is that the hero is kind of unable to take on the behemoth that is sort of cruel society. Uh, So we'll see what happens there. I, I just kind of felt playing with tropes, like that's essentially what I did with, with my three novels. So I, I appreciate the idea of it. I think in this case, it's just it's just not done very well. I think they waste a lot of time on some subplots that really go nowhere. I think there's some moments that are supposed to be either cathartic or somehow showing uh, something about characters that fall away after about five minutes, never to be heard again. So, it, you know, there are some good parts. It looks really good. A lot of the acting is really good. Um but all in all, I, I thought it was a big, big disappointment. So I'm a thumbs down. Kevin Flynn. I'm going thumbs up. I uh, enjoyed season one of Perry Mason. I love this cast. I think it's got some really interesting character development here as it's going forward. I'm not sure why HBO moved this from its Sunday night prestige time slot to Monday where some of its other series seem to languish. I don't know. That doesn't seem like a good sign for me that there's going to be a season three of Perry Mason. Uh, But I am hoping there is because I would watch it. I love Matthew Reese and the supporting cast is excellent. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting mystery. I'd like to see how it all comes together because it's good. But, you know, the caveat is that they haven't landed the plane. And so when we see in the final episode, whether We'll either say, wow, that was clever. They pulled all those different things together. Uh, Or we say, no, they didn't. But right now, I'm thumbs up. Yeah, I am a mild thumbs up for this. It took me a really long time to get into it. Otherwise, I would be a thumbs up. I wasn't enjoying it for the first couple episodes of the season as much, except for my deep, deep, deep love for Matthew Reese, who I could watch in anything. I mean, this is this is I mean there's a few actors for me that I will watch in the the worst thing and I will watch it because they're in it. Matthew Reese is one of those actors for me in no small part because he's in my favorite television show of all time, the show that I think is perhaps one of the best shows ever that's been on television, The Americans. Um I just adore him and even though Perry Mason the character is just kind of poorly sketched out for so much of this season, I just there's something about him being on screen that I just find incredibly electrifying. I think Juliet Rylance as Adela Street is wonderful. And I would really encourage people to watch the little after show, like little shorts that they do on HBO um, for no other reason. Also to watch Matthew Reese and his real voice, which is a whole, about an octave and a half higher than his American accent. Uh, his his Welsh accent has actually toned down quite a bit from what it, what it used to sound like about a decade ago. But his real vocal register is literally an octave higher than his American accent. And Juliet Rylance has a gorgeous British accent in real life. Chris Chalk, by the way, is wonderful in this. If you watch The Newsroom on HBO, he was in that. If you watched When They See Us, um, I think that was a Netflix series. It was about the um, Central Park Exonerated Five. Yeah. He was in that. He's a wonderful actor. He's great in this, too. So that that sort of core cast for me is what brings it through. And it does pick up near the end the atmosphere of the story, the world building of the story. And I think once I sort of understood kind of the real intersection between what they're do, what kind of the stuff they're bringing in from the real life Los Angeles of the period into the story, I started enjoying it more. So, yeah. Thumbs up for me. I do hope there's a season three only so that 
They have the opportunity to not start Perry Mason back at square two again and maybe start him where he should be as Batman at the beginning of the season. All right, now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. The crime of the week. A Brookhaven, Pennsylvania man delivered more than just pizza last week. Driver Tyler Morell was about to ring the bell when a police chase ended up in front of a customer's house. The suspect jumped from the car and ran up the sidewalk to get away from the cops. Standing with a box of pizza, Morell waited for the suspect to pass him. That's when he stuck out his foot and tripped the guy who fell to the ground. The entire thing was caught on the homeowner's doorbell camera. The police handcuffed the suspect, the customer got their pie, and Morell was hailed as a hero. The delivery man told a local TV station, I did as much as I could to prevent the cheese from sliding. So panel, both justice and the pizza were served. What other public services should we expect from our delivery drivers? Laura Bricker, what do you think? What other public services should we expect from our delivery drivers? Um, maybe they're going to fend off the Jehovah Witnesses coming to my door. <laughs> mm. That's a good one. Tell me about what do you think the other public services are that we should expect from our delivery drivers? That was kind of a callback to uh, episode seven, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. Take I, out your recycling? <laughs> yeah, he could take out my recycling without messing up the cheese. What do you think, Kevin Flynn? I think the fire department should bring my wings. All right. That's going to do it for us. But before we go, uh, Lara Bricker, if folks want to follow you on social media, how can they find you there? They can find me at Lara Bricker. Toby Ball, folks want to follow you on social media and say hello. How can they find you there? At Toby Ball NH. Kevin Flynn, what about you? How can you be found? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our incredible community and our official crime writers on facebook discussion group we also have a regular old facebook page just go there hit join the group we'll let you in if you're nice support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media you get the crime writers on after show married with podcast laura bricker's leave it to bricker podcast and toby ball's deep dive book club podcasts our theme song was composed and performed by ty gibbons our line editor is the wonderful livy burdett the executive producer of this fine program is kevin flynn This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, where we also have a wall safe hidden behind a bunch of fake books. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. 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 At a uh, at the twenty five dollar level, we will take <laughs> close up photos of our toes. At the fifty dollar level, we will mail you Laura's toenail. Yes, it's a little gone I, I flushed it down. Oh, the don't toilet. worry, it's I, I, I've been, off I've again. been saving mine <laughs> so off we again. can raffle them. Oh my god.